0: Hello basketball fans and welcome to the Dave and Dia podcast. Starting at center from Portland, the wily veteran Dave Decker. And a guard from Los Angeles, the patron saint of rainbows and unicorns, your podcast MVP, Dia Miller. And yes, here we are again, Trailblazers fans, with your favorite podcast in the whole universe, in the multitude of universes, I am sure. It is Dave and Dia. And normally, I, Dave Deckard, am here with Dia Miller. But Dia is on assignment this week, working for someone else besides Blazer's Edge. (gasps) Believe it or not, she is in Puerto Rico covering the America Cup and she will not be with us. So we have a special guest today. Now, folks, I am hoping that if reincarnation is real and if I've been a very good boy during this life, that when I get to come back, I get to come back with someone as someone with half the knowledge and writing skill of our guest today, because if you do not follow her, you are missing out on one of the best voices about the NBA that has come along in the last five years. Absolutely in tune, absolutely brilliant with the analysis, can put it all down in writing. The entire package we are privileged today to have with us Caitlin Cooper writes about the Indiana Pacers and really the NBA in general, and she's going to talk to us not just about Indiana, but about Portland and the connection between the two and all that stuff. Caitlin, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well. I'm very honored to be on the universe's favorite podcast, and a little bit jealous of Dia for being in Puerto Rico right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Both of those things. We do it high class around here. We don't go halfway. When you uh, when you travel, you travel like all the way to the other end of the country. Are you in Indiana? Disney? Yes,
1: I am. Wow, Born and raised.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. The basketball state. Now, we in the West, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between Oregon and Indiana. It's a a little state that nobody thinks about about, that in 1977 became a hotbed of basketball, at least regionally and locally. Indiana, of course, has a history far beyond that. How did you get bound up in in the NBA and basketball and the Pacers in particular?
1: Right. So, yeah, I think you'd have to be, you're not very Indiana if you don't get roped into basketball somehow but my dad was actually a high school coach when I was growing up so I played and and between his practices and my practices I was just always in gyms close to you know over 50% of my life it felt like between scouting trips games my games just always around the game trying to learn as much as I could and my dad himself was a big fan of the NBA I mean he watched college basketball but he always wanted to watch the best players in the world so when he was watching that's what I grew up and gravitated around and and that was my teaching a lot of the time. We would sit and watch games with my dad. And that's how I learned about basketball Was watching the NBA. So,
0: That is completely awesome. Love that. I got into it through my dad as well. I was just little and he was watching the Blazers because everybody did back then. And I was like, what's that? He was like, basketball. I say, like, who's who's them? Who are they? And they were like he was like, you know, well, it's the Blazers. It's our team. And as soon as he said those words, our team, there we go. Lifelong. <laughs> Just followed them. And it was uh, it was wonderful. So uh, Indiana had a little bit of a rougher season than anticipated this year. What were the expectations coming in and how did it turn out?
1: yeah i mean it was very segmented i think going in people thought you know with a new coach and a new system and once the roster could finally be healthy they could see and actually evaluate what the ceiling was while well, the healthiness never actually came into being i mean within four games tj warren after exploding in the bubble ends up needing foot surgery and then not long after that it's time to move on from victor oladipo because karis lavert becomes an option and then sadly for Karras, he ends up needing to have surgery to treat cancer, so the Pacers were without two wings for a very extended period of time, and then just down the stretch, it just felt like it was one injury after another. I mean, one or the other big wasn't playing. I mean, they came to the point where a guy that they signed out of the G League, who ended up really having a late surge of Shea Bursette, actually had to play minutes, big minutes at the center in some games. So It's not all because of injuries. There was some system issues under the new coaching regime as well, but I mean, I wouldn't say it was disappointing in the sense that I should have Expected different results given who was available, but the process was somewhat disappointing for sure.
0: Yeah, so let me get this straight injuries to centers and guards, coaching turmoil and uh fragmented season and at the end of it you lost your head coach is that am i getting that straight
1: yep it, it sounds about right doesn't it sound a little bit familiar yeah
0: it's it sounds like we're meeting on uh on uh whatever match.com or something we're like youtube
1: oh wow okay
0: yeah um because other than having a new coach at the beginning of the season exactly portland story which is part of the reason that we are talking what what happened now? This this firing is less than a week old as we speak. What happened in Indiana? I mean, what? How did that go down?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting because I excuse me, because I always say last summer when, in reality, it was last offseason. It wasn't last summer. But when the Pacers moved on from Nate McMillan, they had talked heavily about. I mean, at least through reporters, that they wanted to find somebody who would be good as a modern communicator, and that was atop their list. So to hear in the post game presser and from various reports now that Nate Bjorken struggles were mostly with human management and micromanaging players and having trouble delegating and relating with his assistants and just kind of rubbing some throughout the organization, like not just disgruntled players, but also staff members, coaching staff members. I mean, I think that was the biggest piece of it. And when, the end of season presser occurred, Kevin Pritchard indicated, like, you know, we're going to sit down and have a meeting with Nate bjorkin and hope that he's going to be self-reflective and want to fix some of these issues. And Nate bjorkin himself had said, like, this is something I need to grow and learn at. It's just a question of when you have a roster that's ready to win now, are you willing to take a risk? On him learning those things when you could look at the on court product, which is more what I traffic in, and see that, like, a lot of the things he was doing on the defensive end of the floor, he was not willing to be self reflective about. I mean, just at the most basic level, an example I could give people is they played the Wizards four times, got throttled by the Wizards four times, giving up massive point totals, and they went over on every screen against Russell Westbrook, who's one of the least efficient shooters almost all time. And instead of trying to go under and induce like shots from him, they come out in the play tournament game. And yes, they didn't have Karis Lavert, They didn't have TJ Warren. They didn't have Miles Turner. I'm not expecting them to win that game or to have been competitive in a first round series, but to be that stubborn with the game plan and continue doing that really made me question from a personal level, is this somebody who's going to be self-reflective about their management style if they weren't in what their schemes were? So I think that kind of summarizes it mostly.
0: Yeah, brilliant analysis and example. But uh, wait, wait, am I hearing you right? Your coach had defensive issues, did he?
1: Yes, oh, yes. Wow. We don't the know what side. that's
0: like in Portland either. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nate's gone. Uh, it, this is your second Nate in a row that you've let go. I mean, <laughs> hopefully your next coach won't be a third Nate. I guess third time's the charm. But you mentioned a name in there, actually, that is near and dear to... Portland fans, Kevin Pritchard, mm-hmm. formerly the lead executive of the Blazers until literally draft night 2010, when he was fired 10 minutes before the NBA draft by then owner Paul Allen, rest in peace, and then allowed to make the picks, which is how we got Luke Babbitt and Elliot Williams and uh, Whatever Armand Johnson, I think, was in uh, the famous story of that is they held up the numbers and it was like 911. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was the numbers on the jerseys, it's like which exactly summarized that draft. In any case, Pritchard moved on to Indiana and he's been there for now quite a long time. Uh, what's your assess- uh, assessment of KP? and the job he's doing and and how is he beloved there or how's it going
1: My opinion probably differs a little bit I know when all this coaching stuff happened I mean that was the first coach that he had personally hired he had connections with Nate McMillan clearly from his time in Portland but that was Larry Bird's hire so this was going to be the first coach that was hired under him and he wanted to take a risk and he did that and it clearly didn't pan out so there was a lot of I would say throughout Indiana Pacer Twitter circles talk about like everyone should be on the hot seat. And certainly the front office carries some blame for making this hire and that it didn't necessarily fit the roster. Like being the Indiana Raptors fit pretty well offensively, not so well defensively when you're trying to shapeshift through a whole bunch of different defensive coverages with a roster composed mostly of centers and guards. But I think overall, like I just give them a lot of credit because I've said this many times, like from a writing standpoint, if the Pacers make a trade, I'm going to be very afraid to criticize that trade because Kevin Pritchard's just done such a good job between looking at, you know, moving on from Paul George and you get two all-stars and DeMontis Sabonis and Victor Oladipo to the exact timing that he waited on to move Victor. Like if you would have moved him before this season started, his value likely would have been a little bit lower, but they were willing to, you know, even with some of the drama that was surlicking around that, Take a measured approach, wait for him to come back and rebuild some of his value, and then strike when Karis LeVert became available, who I think most likely was the best player available that they would have gotten in that return, given what Houston got for Victor when they flipped him to Miami and what the situation's looking like with Miami and Victor now. And then also TJ Warren, you can look at that trade. Like Most of those are wins. The draft has been somewhat of a weak spot. TJ Leaf another connection between the two teams is now a two-way contract with Portland that didn't pan out they had to send out a pick to get off of their number one pick obviously they took Goga Patadze and there's just not been playing time for him because the Pacers have two centers ahead of him Aaron Holiday had a fairly rough season this year so the draft has been somewhat of a hole and he definitely needs to nail the person that he uh nail the next coaching hire here. Like there can't probably be a lot of risk taking. Like that needs to be somebody that, you know, I wasn't super caught up with being experienced with experience. But at this point, given what it sounds like the human management and the locker room stuff was, I'm sure that's where they're gonna lean. But I think overall that Kevin Pritchard's done a good job. And I appreciate that when he did this prose game or this presser about letting go of Nate Bjorker and that it probably would have been easy for them to dig in and let that fester for another year and rather than to admit like, hey we made a mistake here and we're going to correct it and, and we're going to try to do better. So I acknowledge that.
0: So, Caitlin, you're telling me your roster is mostly made up of centers and guards?
1: Yep, Boy, the yep. Bla-
0: the Blazers have no idea what that's like either. Uh, could <laughs> no. I interest you in a Carmelo Anthony? Because you know he's he, he's a lot of fun to follow for scoring records for a year and a great dis- distraction from a mediocre record. In in any case, next coach that might be rumored and actually the the first thing that I thought would happen if Stotts was let go, that I thought he might end up in Boston. But I think Indiana is also a strong possibility, which would make time number three, by the way, that the Blazers fired a coach and he went immediately to the Pacers. Jack Ramsey, Nate McMillan. Do you think Terry Stotts is far behind? What have you heard? And do you think that would be a good hire?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some local reporting that seem to suggest that that's a pretty strong, that there's a lot of ties connecting him there. I mean, Terry Stotts has ties to Indiana, having played high school basketball here. I've just started, like, really digging in. I mean, more even so than some of the playoff games. I've been watching a lot of Blazers film here lately to see how some of the offensive schemes would translate, and I think that, yeah, the Pacers don't have somebody like Damian Lillard or even CJ McCollum. I mean, they don't have guys who shoot a lot of pull-up threes or are going to be shooting a lot of deep threes, but I do like a lot of the movement, kind of mover-blocker wheel stuff that the Blazers run that I think could be good motion-wise. I mean, some of the sets are exactly the same that Nate Bjorken runs. Like, so Going from there, it's not like the Pacers are going to lose a lot of what they gained offensively by hiring Nate Bjorken and I think that should be part of the goal that you don't want to take a step back in that regard and I think Stotts would provide them with a relatively high offensive floor with what pieces they have and I think, I mean, some of what I've read and this would be a good commentary for you to answer on, I mean, they need somebody who's going to come in and be a culture setter and that seems like somebody that Terry Stotts could be that could unite guys in a locker room have a united front with a, you know, a player I mean, not that they have somebody the quality of Dame I know there's been a lot of conversations that the patient don't really have a vocal leader in the sense that Damian Lillard has been but I think he could fill that void and not just only that but having experience with running a staff I was listening to an interview that Stotts did talking about his participatory leadership style and really consulting with assistants and his players and that sounds like the polar opposite of what Nate Bjorkman was doing last year so I would ask you what just as like a people manager and a culture setter did you guys think of Terry Stotts in Portland?
0: Yeah, let's get to that in a second. But yeah, I promise I'll answer, but you said something in there that, that the Pacers don't have a Damian Lillard or a C.J. McCollum. Can I interest you in a C.J. McCollum? I mean, you can't have Lillard, but uh, just keep that in the back of your head now uh, because you you could have one. I, I know where one is available. In any case, Stotts, I think you could not ask for better as far as a franchise culture person, that everybody who's come in contact with him walks away saying, this guy is just a good person to be around, that everyone from the franchise superstar and the president of basketball operations down to reporters, down to people who carry towels and do whatever, just he will stop, he will listen, he will thank them. He he just has that aura of making you feel like you're heard and you're important, which is not always common in the NBA. The NBA is an elitist league, and rightfully so. But you know, you get that vibe from some people that they're just walking on a different planet than you. And Stotts is the opposite. He lifts you up to wherever he's walking and makes you feel like you're right there, which is a lot The the M.O. of Kevin Pritchard, too, at least the Kevin Pritchard I knew, so it's probably a good fit there. As far as the schemes and the players and the coaches... So look, Stott's offense went through a couple incarnations here. One was with LaMarcus Aldridge, where they went pick and pop and at the elbow, jump shot, you know, six foot 11 guy, and then the kick out for the standstill three. And then the one you see today, which is centered much more around Lillard and McCollum, and the kind of, it's iso ball, but it's iso ball with a twist. And the twist is that the players have control, that every light is green, If you cannot hit a shot, Stotts will have trouble playing you. That's, for instance, what happened to Derek Jones Jr. He didn't get a a great chance to play this year, even though he was an exciting young player and might have marginally helped the defense with a little bit more integration. But he couldn't hit a three, so he couldn't stay on the floor. And... That's a necessity because Stotts puts the green light on for everybody. Stotts puts the ball in the hands of his players and says, "You know, here's the set, here's the scheme. You go out, you read, you make the play. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to yank you prematurely for taking a shot if it's open. You shoot it." And the Blazers, really, their hallmark was everybody talks about their amazing offense. Well, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing because of Damian Lillard, but it was also amazing because they just got shots up quick. I mean, and it was not a fast break offense. It was a half court offense. And he was like, first shot, you shoot it no matter who it is. And you know we're going to live with the results because we're going to get up more shots than the opponent. We're going to hit a reasonably high percentage, and that's going to give us a margin in every game. And then we'll hope our defense can keep that margin. That was not always so, but you could not ask for a better offensive coach if you are an NBA player. You will have a lot of agency and a lot of permission, which is just fantastic, I think, at this level.
1: Right. And I think that that shines through a lot when you look at some of the sets that they're running because like I said with some of the like you know Virginia-esque mover blocker with the flares and the pins that is going to be the greenest of green lights but also the like the Blazers just get so many options out of that they might add like a a screen rescreen where what you're saying totally shines through that the player has the agency to make the reads within that and it kind of does require that you have players that can make those types of reads to really make the system sing as well that are going to be able to process what the defense is doing in a split second because yeah they play with tempo in the half court i agree with you it's not like a, you're not going to be like I mean, what the Pacers were doing towards the back end of the season, where they were basically having to get as many extra possessions as possible to make up for how bad their defense and rebounding was. For the Blazers, it's more how quickly they're getting through what they're doing in the half court, and that definitely shows up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing with Stotts that people miss. Yes, he came in the exact same time Damian Lillard came in, and so the two were bound together. But Damian Lillard isn't Damian Lillard without Terry Stotts. And if you look at, for instance, Nate McMillan, the old Nate McMillan, I think he's probably changed now, especially looking at Trey Young. But the old Nate McMillan... And most coaches would have tried to mold Damian Lillard into the classic point guard, which is, you know, you shoot some and you take, you know, we understand they're scoring guards, but you have to slow down. You have to get quality shots. You have to set up all your teammates. And basically, you are the floor general rather than the tip of the spear. Stotts took one look at Lillard even with LaMarcus Aldridge on the floor and as the unquestioned number one option and said to Dame, you're going to be you. You do you. And there was a little bit of integration in Dame's rookie year, but not much. And by his second or third year, he was a primary scorer just as much as LaMarcus Aldridge was. And Aldridge had way more experience. And even beyond that, when Aldridge left, look, why does Damian Lillard take 30 and 35 footers? why has that now become an evolution in the league obviously Steph Curry started it but it's not the guy who starts it if it's if it's one player you think it's about that one player right it's because it's Steph Curry Stotts gave Dame the permission and freedom to hoist those shots that very few other coaches would and not only was it effective it was so comfortable as to be seamless for Lillard and now, all of a sudden, that's the archetype for the for the league, and that happens. Yes, because of Dame's talent, but also because Terry Stotts looked at him and said, y- "Whatever you are, that's what we're going to take advantage of." Uh, do yeah. you think? I mean, are there players yet on the Pacers who you look at and say, "Okay, if this guy were given complete freedom, were given you know no eyes looking over the shoulder, some guidance, a system, sure." But was let loose to be exactly who they are that he would blossom. Do you feel like that resource exists on the Pacers or are they all pretty maxed out already?
1: I mean, I think there's room for more of them to grow. I don't think they necessarily have a number one option as much as they're hoping they have a complementary core. But like the way you phrased that, I mean, you look at like Karis Levert in the bubble when he was playing under Jacques Vaughn. The one thing Vaughn did for that bubble team was he ran really streamlined actions. And when Spencer Dinwiddie and Kyrie Irving aren't there, and Karis Levert really has a lot of freedom to do, as you're saying, to have the green light and be able to wheel, like he's not, he's not going to be what Damian Lillard is as a shooter. His J is just too iffy, especially off the ball. But I think there's more that he can do when he has the ball in his hands that could be... Um, yet to be unearthed and in Nate Bjorkren's defense like Karis just wasn't fully there conditioning wise after returning from the surgery and then with one big in and out of the lineup at all times, he really needs to be a pick and roll guy. And you could see that starting to blossom over the last month or so when he got to really gel with Sabonis, obviously like on Sabonis's case, like he's just so good at being connective tissue and being able to get everyone around him involved and be able to operate out of the elbows. And, and the Blazers did some of that. Like I found some of those sets with Nurkic, obviously that's not going to be your mainstay when you have two players, the caliber of, of Lillard and uh, McCollum, but I think in Stotts' case, if he had Sabonis, that he would tap into more of that and what you could get out of it as what the last two coaches in Indiana have done. Because when you have a weapon the caliber of Sabonis, it would be kind of silly to just plop him in the dunker spot or just mainly only be using him as a screener when he can create so much. And you can get stuff out of cuts towards the basket. And some of it, like I said, is there. Like I would just expect that Stotts would probably expand it a little bit more. But I think that your point, again, rings true, that he seems like a coach who will empower his top guys in whatever ways that he can, that he's going to evaluate those skills and get more out of them. Now, defensively is another question. but
0: Yeah, and that's the big Rorschach test in Portland, because despite the uh, claims of Neil Olshe in his press conference recently that Portland's defensive problems were completely coaching and not at all roster, uh, yeah. it, it, you don't have to look very far before you hit – shaky defenders in Portland. I mean, starting with Lillard. Although, frankly, when Lillard has four strong players around him, his defense looks way better. He's just not going to be that point person. But, I mean, Lillard, McCollum, you have (laughs) Carmelo Anthony, uh, Ennis Cantor, for gosh sakes. Uh, Anthony Simons got better uh, as the year went by, but he's still not anybody's idea of a stopper. That's five of your top eight who are Probably bad defenders <laughs> at best, somewhat mediocre. So I'm not entirely convinced that this was coaching. Uh, but yeah. Indiana, do you think they're better off from a personnel standpoint, more primed to play defense? Or do they also have gaping holes?
1: Well, I mean, this year they did because their roster just was already somewhat imbalanced. And then when you don't have TJ Warren, they were just mainly getting cooked by bigger wings and a lot of different games. But it's also really tough to evaluate because, like I said with Bjorken before, when, I mean, I hate to use this word, but it was just a lot of half baked and sort of galaxy brain stuff they were attempting to do. Like, I mean, they would come out of timeouts. I've used this example for a lot of people. Like, they came out of a timeout against Denver and ran triangle and two with Brogdon shadowing Jokic. Like, that was a legitimate thing that they tried. Ran tons of box and one and triangle and two against the Wizards and against other teams and it didn't, It just never looked like that they either didn't have enough practice time or the teaching just wasn't there for them to have a full grasp on what their roles and responsibilities between the various zone country, coverages actually needed to be. And then, you know, people are getting tired of me bringing this one up too, but I mean, Sabonis leading the league in distance traveled on defense is just absolutely ridiculous. Like, as a center, that has never happened since the league started tracking that data, and you could see it a lot with the way they were using him, like in this help and recover role. Like, the Pacers just did not have the rangy defenders to be doing what Toronto did but if you look a year beforehand this roster was basically identical to last year now there's a big difference between what you can do with Victor versus Karras as defenders but they were starting Jeremy Lamb for the majority of last year and they did have the benefit of TJ Warren but they had a top six defense so I like to think that there is the capability for this team to be better at defense when they're fully healthy if you're implementing more conservative schemes which is more what Terry Stotts did. And I think in defense of Terry Stotts, like with the starting lineup that Portland had, I mean, you're not going to be doing a lot of switching or like, there's just not a lot of scheme flexibility there. Like you're not going to be doing a lot of blitzing. Um, I mean, I know, I mean, I'd like to get your feedback on this one. I know they called in Jim Boylan at the start of the season and tried to consult with him in preseason. And that went pretty disastrous with trying to do some of what Chicago did. And I mean, how long after that was it that they were just like, you know, this doesn't work for us?
0: Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just Boylan. I mean, he didn't, for whatever reason, his welcome wasn't long. Although the official story now is that he was just supposed to be in there for a couple weeks and that was that. But given the defensive pressure that was on this team to improve, it's hard to believe that if things went really rosy, that he wouldn't have stuck around longer and they wouldn't have wanted him. And really, when Nurkic came back, their defense did improve somewhat. It got blown apart a little bit in the playoffs because, of course, you're going up against Against the greatest center of our age or at least most versatile so that was a tough cover for Nurkic, and then he also had to cover for everyone else which is i think part of his post game and post series frustration that literally yeah. i'm looking around and i'm the only one who's doing anything and i'm not getting to shoot the ball ever and i I'm, I'm i'm setting screens i'm doing everything for everyone else and no one's picking up for me uh which is i think a legitimate uh critique of both the roster and perhaps of the coaching, because I think Stotts is a little traditional in that way, that if you are the number one option, other people are supposed to cover for you. Uh, And that I think part of the problem with the Blazers is that there are a lot of people who thought they might be one number one options and wanted other people to cover for them. And that didn't work. That said, I think that Stotts probably, I agree. He's not the best defensive coach. That's not his forte. But it worked a couple years ago when the team was entirely healthy. It worked for about a month here when the team was again more or less entirely healthy. Uh, It's just that there are some mismatches which the Blazers weren't equipped to handle for 48 minutes. And also, they just were never healthy. I mean, Nurkic's broken leg in 2019 diverted the course of this franchise. And we all knew it when it happened. They were playing the best basketball they had ever played, they were looking like legitimate threats. And then it all came tumbling down and it still hasn't come back.
1: Yeah. And I think yeah, all of that is very good points because, I mean, I didn't get to see two of the games, unfortunately, in the Blazers-Nuggets series because they were on NBA TV, which I don't get to watch. But Portland, you know, you have to make a choice between if you're going to double, you're not going to double Jokic. I mean, that was kind of, to me, a big crux of what you're doing. You have Nurkic. Nurkic is getting into foul trouble for reasons you say. Like It was kind of clear that it looked like at times that the rest of the team was like, you know, kind of sometimes like what you can see from the Pacers, like Miles Turner, we're going to overburden you. You fix what mistakes that we make. Or, you know, Robert Covington, you fix some of the stuff that we're doing and you be in the gaps or, you know, whatever it may be. But they also just didn't have the size and the length to really be effectively doubling Jokic and be rotating out of those double teams in some instances if that's the way they had gone, or at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think that Kevin Pritchard also noted that in the presser that, you know, we're going to hire a coach and we're going to assess that coach's strengths and weaknesses and hope to build an assistant coaching staff where perhaps you bring in, if you do hire Stotts, you're going to find a defensive coordinator that's going to be able to supplement what some of those weaknesses may be. But I do think you need to take account what you said too. You didn't have Nurkic for part of, of seasons and that definitely changes what you're going to be able to do defensively. Personnel matters. I think there's a lot of one-way players currently on the Blazers roster that limited what Stotts was going to be able to do. So,
0: Well, and people missed that the core of this team grew up with itself. I mean, that happened to Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge, but then Roy got injured and was out of the league, and Aldridge left in free agency, right? Basically, Roy and Aldridge had to teach themselves. They, they were part of that reset in two, six, 2016, where there were no veterans left. And then they, there was no real corporate knowledge to pass along to Lillard, right? So Lillard and McCollum had to raise themselves as well. uh, And joyously, in some ways, I'm glad they're able to be everything they can be. That said, this idea of the difference between scoring and winning, uh, or the difference between moderate success and ultimate success, that's not inculcated in Portland's culture. The jailblazers years broke that chain that was there really until about 2001. And so, You get these players, I think, who are otherwise fantastic, but also have a limited view of their role and their responsibility. And that gene that says, I'm to go above and beyond that, that kind of comes late. I think it's come to Damian Lillard. I think it's dawning on CJ McCollum, maybe, and on Yusuf Nurkic. But they're coming like three and four years late to this because I don't think anyone brought them up in it. So the basic problem that you end up having is Lillard had that number one option. I'm doing my job. I'm scoring 30 a night. McCollum also had that mindset. Yusuf Nurkic also carried that mindset for a while. He got over it quicker, probably because the reality of the roster slapped him in the face and his place in it. But then you also bring on Carmelo Anthony, who, guess what, also grew up with that. Now, all of a sudden, you got at least three and a half guys who are just stalwarts in your upper rotation who all have a star mentality. That's not really working. It's like the opposite of what happened in Brooklyn where Harden became a great defender (laughs) once he went there. It's like that never happened in Portland, and they're just now trying to figure that out. Now, whether that's coaching, that may be part of it. Maybe that should have been brought in from there, but uh, it wasn't. So if Indiana needs that, who knows if that'll happen, but maybe Stotts, if he goes there, will have learned from round one and will be better prepared for round two.
1: Yeah, it's always tough to parse how much of that is coming from, you know, is the coach holding players accountable versus the stuff that all that you just laid out there. And that's certainly context that I wouldn't have had. So yeah.
0: well, Good and injury. also, how does did you, maybe you tell me, Caitlin, how does I think Stott's going into Indiana can hold players accountable because yeah. A, there's been some lack of success. B, there's just been a coaching transition uh, and C, Kevin Pritchard is hiring him to do just that. Okay? Yeah. But look where he came into Portland. He was Neil Olshay's hire in Damian Lillard's draft year. Okay. Uh, yes, you're bringing up Lillard. But how do you ultimately hold Lillard or McCollum or anybody accountable when they're literally the only horses you're riding? You can't stop that horse. You can't even really turn that horse real hard because the wagon's either going to lose momentum or tip over. He wasn't in a place where he... If, what would have happened if he had tried to bench C.J. CJ McCollum? It would yeah. have been a nightmare at all levels of the organization. So in some ways, a place like Indiana might be a fairer start. Now, I, I, I got a question for you, too. So we've mentioned Turner. We've mentioned Sabonis. Uh, you know, there are various other players. Levert. Are any of those untouchable for the Pacers right now? I mean, who, if you had to point out somebody, it's like there's zero chance that the Pacers trade this guy. Is there anybody like that on the team?
1: Yeah. Let me, this is what I've been telling people. If in a month from now, I could look into like a crystal ball and see, well, I mean, it'd be longer than a month, but whenever free agency and the draft and everything happens, if I could look into it and say, you would tell me, you could literally tell me any of those people have been traded and I'd probably be like, oh yeah. Like, I mean, Kevin Pritchard indicated that, you know, it didn't seem like he was necessarily and this is where I would stand as well. I'm not opposed to bringing those five players back and seeing what a new coach can do and hopefully they get healthy and not even necessarily because I believe in what like, I think that that probably has a limited ceiling to a certain extent, but just because the five of them have not played a minute of basketball together yet. Like we don't know what that can be in the sense of how, which pieces gel with which ones, what can the defense actually look like with the various pieces? I mean, I have somewhat of an idea of what that would have been if it was Victor. I don't so much now with it being Karis. So just to get, to use that as, I mean, basically research and intelligence to see it before, you know, you make a, a trade there. But at the same time, I'm not fully committed to it. So if, if they think that they can get a lot in return from somebody, I, I could see them doing it. I mean, the, the two-center experiment has felt like they've been kicking the can down the road for quite a while now, where a choice is eventually going to need to be made there for them to upgrade the rest of the roster. And just, I mean, it's interesting because... I always get asked, you know, which type of player would fit with Sabonis or which type of player would fit with Miles. And usually if you would write down a list, a lot of the characteristics would be that other center. It's just that there's inherent limitations there where, you know, it doesn't fit like feel like the fit is exactly perfect. But I don't think I would designate anyone as untouchable, but I think it would take a pretty, uh massive package for Sabonis to be getting moved or even for Malcolm Brogdon. But I would—I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they went in that direction, though it does sound like Herb Simon's pretty resistant to going the full rebuild mode, that they'd more be in the position where we don't want to be in the middle, we want to get better. So it would have to be a move where if they you know, traded Sabonis or Turner, that it would be something that would actually make them competitive now, even if they were also getting draft capital as part of it.
0: Yeah, Portland's in a similar situation, I think, and I'm not sure that the draft picks will do it, but I think McCollum is more available now than he's ever been, obviously. I think actually Nurkic is available because he is on the last year of his contract next year. It's not even fully guaranteed, but the Blazers will pick it up because it's cheap, but I don't know that they're willing to bank on extending or re-signing him. So he would be a lame duck this year. Yeah. Now, I don't think they move him for nothing. Uh, I think they need to get better. But there are some names available on Portland's roster that were not up to this point. The problem, if you're Portland, though, is, because, is once you start talking about those two, I mean, you've got to re-sign Norman Powell, I think, if you move CJ, because then your shooting guard spot is open. But your front court is still pretty empty. I love Robert Covington, and he's a great complimentary player. I hope they keep him for a while, at least, because he's done great. But he's a thin thread on which to, or a thin platform on which to build your front court. And if you were to trade Nurkic, you've got to get something in that front court significant back. Otherwise, that's just a big, uh, that's just a big hole up there. So, you know, if you guys have got a center that's available, I don't know, there, there might be some possibilities there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like from reporting out of, I mean, at least the Indianapolis Star that the expectation is is that Brogdon, LaVert, Warren, and Sabonis will be back and that Miles Turner could potentially be moved, which has been the rumor for like you know, two years now, they almost traded him for Gordon Hayward before the season started. So that would be the way that it seems like they would be leaning. I mean, I would think, like I said before, if you're moving Sabonis, I would think that's because you're preparing to go into a full on rebuild. But I'm also just at the point where nothing would surprise me, given everything that transpired over the last 12 months.
0: Well, I would say don't late, don't wait until too late because I think that's the situation that Portland is finding themselves in. That right. a lot of these players had more cachet and value a couple of years ago, but the foresight wasn't there to say this really isn't going to work as is. Although I think plenty of people were saying it, but management was kind of stubborn about that. And uh, now I d- I'm not sure McCollum has the same aura or value that he did, especially after this year's playoffs that he might have two years ago. He doesn't look like a combo guard or a point guard as much anymore. And that possibility was still open. He's not a defender. Um, he is still a wizard. I mean, nearly prescient uh, in the mid-range. That is his big strength. And he can shoot the three. I mean, he's he's a wonderful guard offensively, almost uh, unique in this NBA. But I don't think his value is that high. What, what's the perception? What, if anything, have you heard about or seen from CJ McCollum? How do you think the perception of him and what do you think the perception of him is around the league?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting with the guys who can be what you said, like wizards in the mid-range, because some of that was with the case with T.J. Warren. Like, you know, he's this guy who's this buttery mid-range scorer and can get to all these spots on the floor, and then he goes to the bubble in Orlando, and he really expands his game out to three, supposedly at the urging of Nate McMillan at the time, and he shoots it absurdly well in there, playing this, you know, four at the four position because Sabonis was out, which allowed the Pacers to do some different things with him at the four. But then because he had the three... That, you know, he already had the mid-range game to rely on when he got leveraged into those spots. And it seemed like CJ really expanded and traded out some of those mid-range shots for threes, obviously, this year with how many pull-up threes he was taking. So that's credit to him for work that he obviously put in his game and was at least amenable to changing that particular approach. But from what I saw post-playoffs, it sounds like the perception is that most teams aren't seeing him as a second option anymore, or seeing him as more you know, as third in a pecking order. Is that what people in Portland are generally assessing it as?
0: Well, I mean, he'll always be second here because of Lillard. But if Dame wasn't here, he would have developed into a first option. There's little doubt about that. He would have gotten all the shots he wanted, and you would have seen his game develop more. And I think that's still where Portland's mindset is, kind of. I believe management, too still sees the potential and the production of C.J. McCollum. I don't think they think he's anywhere near a third option. I think, at, at worst, they think he's a solid second. But I don't necessarily disagree with you entirely. He's he's right on the brink of being one of those guys. And you think back to, like, Monte Ellis or, you know, players from a, a generation ago who would always give you 20 but weren't built to give you the kind of 20 that would lead to wins and i don't think cj is there yet but i would say another season of this and he'd probably be there now again i think there's his ability to shoot the three which means he can shoot just about any shot except a layup the other thing is he doesn't draw fouls and that's yeah. a real serious uh, lack for a number one option but again part of that metamorphosis who has stepped to the fore Damian Lillard has increasingly taken over this team in the last couple of years meaning CJ is more of the wingman and that's where some of the three point shot is coming from because he's just not had the same kind of opportunities to handle the ball uh and early in the season when he did get those he was scoring 30 a game so i think there's still a ray of hope there but a you better seize it or it's going to be gone. And B, that hope might be best with another team that's not Portland.
1: Yeah. And I've seen, I see a lot of Portland fans that are very interested in a Sabonis for McCollum swap, which, like, if the Pacers were to do that, you know, it, it seems like they feel pretty good about putting the ball more in the hands of both LaVert and Warren. They already have Brogdon, who, I mean, I don't know how many people know this, but Brogdon believes that his best position is the point guard spot. That was in part why he was comfortable moving on from milwaukee to indiana because he wanted to play point and and to his credit like i mean you can run offense through him and he can also be a guy that attacks second side i mean he he, he can do more things like he's not going to do them with the same flair and wow factor that karis can do but he, he can play off ball in a way that you don't really want karis Levert doing so and the sense of the pacers for them to choose a big and then have warren Levert, mccollum and Brogdon, there would have to be, I think, a lot of sacrifices made there. And I would think that, it, well, at least on Karis's front, even if he isn't necessarily... You know, what your opinion of him versus LaVert is now. I think that might stunt his overall growth a little bit if that was a trade that the Pacers were to make. And then on the flip side of that, like, I would think if I have those four players that I would really want Sabonis to be there to be like running DHOs with some of them up top and really be acting as traffic cop in terms of, okay, you have the ball here, but if, if it gets stuck on that side of the floor, I can still connect the other side of the floor. And that's not really something Miles can do. But then, as you say, like, Karras and McCollum's defense is awfully shaky and you would no longer have miles Turner's safety net but i see that there's a lot of portland fans that have been interested at least in my mentions and the idea of adding sabonis in portland for yeah. the clear connections to his dad i'm sure is part of it too
0: <laughs> exactly well uh, let's let's do a 2 prong thing here first of all i, I told you folks about uh, basketball knowledge and what have you we should all be so lucky for our listeners explain what a dho is
1: Oh, a dribble handoff. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what's the bonus. I mean, he's just so fluid at running dribble handoffs into rescreens and being able to do that on both sides of the floor. And, and you don't notice, like I've seen before, like, should a handoff be an assist? Because in essence, you're just standing there and handing the ball. I'm like, and I don't mean this to be mean to Miles Turner, but if you watch both of those bigs run a handoff, you know that an assist is warranted because one of them is going to accomplish it just super fluidly, and then also be able to slip into space and make plays four on three, and the other one is really going to struggle in those aspects. So, yeah. yes, I think it should count as an assist.
0: And there's a technique to it. What you, where you place your body, where you put that ball. Yes. I mean, there's stuff you got to see. And uh, same with pick setting. By the way, uh, you watch, for instance, on the Blazers, you Nurkic versus anybody else. And there's a yeah. market difference. And maybe you only see it in the results, but it's there. Um, so let's, let's, let's do this then. I, I, I would say, if I were Indiana, I, I would laugh at Sabonis for CJ. I mean, that's just, that's just not going to happen without further compensation anyway. Let's just presume that's off the table. If the Blazers came knocking at your door with CJ McCollum uh, and or CJ McCollum and somebody else, who's not named Damian Lillard. What What do you think would be a reasonable, what would excite you or interest you uh, about acquiring CJ? Like, who would you give back is what I'm trying to say.
1: I mean, my guess is that I'd have to look at some of the cap sheet stuff. I haven't yeah, don't really... Don't worry about
0: salaries. Let's just do... Oh, uh, okay. Let's just do... Okay.
1: I mean, my guess is if they were doing something along those lines, if they're going to get a wing or another guard, it would be with, I mean, it would be with Miles Turner in mind. I mean, it sounds like he's the guy who would be on the move. It's just that from my standpoint, this is why it's so tough to move on from either one of the two bigs, because for the reasons I just said about, you know, Sabonis, when he's not out there, you can see the things you just said too about Nurkic and the screening. I've written whole articles about Sabonis as a screener. In addition, just his ability of like, okay, the play's broken down. We need to play out of pocket. Sabonis so is the person you throw it to to get to the next action. Now in the reverse when Miles isn't there anymore, I've seen what the defense looks like when Miles isn't there. Like Sabonis so is not going to be the rim protector that Miles is going to be because he doesn't have the measurables for one to be the shot blocker, but he's just not as adaptable in terms of you know, Miles to a degree, you could definitely play him at the level and sometimes he can step out and blitz as well. Sabonis so struggles kind of as a shuffler at times. He's okay in a drop, but it just limits what you can Do I think there's ways to scheme for rim protection? The Pacers just haven't done that because they've always had Miles Turner there to, you know, like we don't need to do that. We have this guy who leads the league and and blocks. So I would be worried if it was a flat out swap for CJ McCollum and Miles Turner, what they were going to do defensively, unless they hired somebody who is a really good defensive guru who was going to be able to make that work. But just from the outsider's perspective, My guess is that's who would be on the move if the Pacers did something. And I don't know how interesting that would be to Portland, given that Nurkic is already under contract.
0: Well, it might not be a horrible move simply for the reason we mentioned. Nurkic may not be under contract very much longer. And, uh, you know, that would then make him movable the same way CJ is now movable because you have Norman Powell. Now, I don't think that they can trade CJ if they don't resign Norman Pell. I think they have to. Uh, otherwise, the move is at, at best lateral. Unless you go you give someone like TJ Warren for him, but I don't think that's possible either. So, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of moving parts have to fit for the Blazers in any trade scenario, and I think a little bit more so with the Pacers because there's not quite as you as you put it, nothing is seamless. <laughs> right. ev- everything takes a little bit of support out for something else which the new incoming player doesn't replace now. Outsiders' perspective. You said too before we before we drift off into general NBA talk and then goodbye. Outside looking in. What's the league perception, or what's your perception from afar of the Trailblazers franchise? What words uh, descriptions come to mind when you think of Portland?
1: Well, I mean, I just I think from an outsider's perspective. I mean, some of the stuff that I said when I listened to. The interview that Sots gave about the culture is just how much Damian Lillard means to that city and that franchise as a franchise player. I think that's my initial reaction is as what I mean, I don't even necessarily like using the word loyalty with regards to players and teams, but just how much Damian Lillard has wanted to win in Portland and the way that he's developed and grown there. I mean, to the extent now that reading all of these articles and seeing all these posts about, you know, what, what, what would it take to pry Damian Lillard from Portland? What type of a trade package? And like, I can't even imagine what type of a trade package it would take to get Damian Lillard. I mean, I just think that that would have to be some massive haul, especially given like just how many picks Milwaukee just gave up for Drew holiday this summer. Um, But yeah, I think that the culture is my main takeaway. And then just wondering where their coaching search is going to go. Like seeing some of those candidates that have come up here in the last week. It was very refreshing after, you know, Dame had made his public comments that he wanted Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billups to see that they were, you know, going to be interviewing Becky Hammond and Don Staley and also Mike D'Antoni just wanting that job, apparently saying that he's actually interested in it, which, you know, I did some pro I did a lot of coaching profiles last year because the Pacers interviewed around 20 candidates and Mike D'Antoni, while I don't necessarily think he would help you know, Portland's defensive situation without some surrounding assistance. Like, I think sometimes we just equate Mike D'Antoni with like, you know, quote unquote, what the idea of analytics is and, you know, James Harden pounding the air out of the ball. But there was a lot of innovation and tactics that went around what James Harden did in Houston, as well as the seven seconds or less Suns. And I think if anything, what his greatest strength is, is his ability to amplify playmakers and put them in the middle of the floor in a freewheeling system but that doesn't always show up in what you know what is noticeable is a scheme but a lot of it is because of stuff that he is readily doing so I think that that could be awesome for Damian Lillard if that was the hire but I don't know if they should readily expect that their defense would automatically get better but I'm definitely keeping an eye on Portland's coaching search in tandem with the Pacers as well
0: do you think Portland is plateaued
1: yeah I mean that's kind of what I mean I didn't see a lot of what the Portland fan reaction was but I was honest enough to say headed into the the Blazers Nuggets series that I didn't have a firm feel for which team was going to come out of that as the winners but I don't think now looking at this Phoenix series that that has aged particularly well um just watching what Phoenix has been able to do to dismantle that and really be making Jokic be moving on the defensive end to the extent that it's harder for him to carry the offensive load. And for Dame, I'm sure that the frustration's there that they couldn't get past an injured Nuggets team and now the Nuggets just got swept by the Suns a, a series later. So, I mean, it's definitely that perception with what the outcome, if we're going to take these playoffs completely seriously and take overarching thoughts out of a year where, you know, there wasn't a lot of practice time and there was a lot of, you know, just world stuff going on. That's where I would land.
0: If you, if you were suddenly made the GM, would you be inclined to make moves right now to, to mix up this roster now?
1: I guess it would first, if I was the GM, I would first want to listen to all of the coaching interviews and hear from them, What do you think that you can do from this current roster on both sides of the ball? Once I heard all of those statements, then I would probably be moving to, you know, also at the same time, be listening to what offers I could be getting from McCollum and Nurkic and weighing it that way. Like, it's always tough to say. People always ask this with the Pacers too, like, well, which big are you going to move or, you know, which this or that? I'm like, well, I can't really have a firm opinion on that because I'm not the general manager who knows what offers are actually out there on the table to, you know, be making a choice because in a lot of regards, what you said, it's finding a perfect balance and finding the move. That's actually going to move the needle forward, but it feels like that's, what's going to be necessary. It's kind of like what I said last year when they let go of Nate McMillan, it's like, yeah, Nate McMillan's offensive schemes felt like they had made that team plateau that there was going to need to be more innovation there, but I didn't feel like he should be scapegoated entirely, especially when Sabonis didn't even go to the bubble and other stuff. And, and, that there was going to need to be roster change to get to the next level and that's how I still look at the Pacers to a certain extent like even if this new coach comes in and it is Stotts and there's a high offensive floor and even if the defense maintains I don't know that I would necessarily pick them in a playoff series with Milwaukee or Brooklyn or Philadelphia so then are you just hitting your heads on the brick wall that is well we might be competitive in a second round series or you know we might get out of the first round like that would be more palatable to what I just watched but I don't know that fans are going to be satisfied with that and that's kind of what it feels like in Portland as well especially when you know that teams like Denver and the Lakers and others were dealing with like having guys falling down and going down in the playoffs or having Jamal Murray tearing an ACL like you would naturally think that they're going to be better in a year from now
0: yeah and and Portland isn't the young team anymore this is what people miss we're used to the mindset of you know this is 2016 and it, the main players are 26 and they're really not (laughs) they're 31 uh, headed for 32 uh, and that's Lillard and CJ's a year younger I mean the Pacers somewhat I think you guys are on average a little younger in your core than than uh, the Blazers are but you watch it the, the number of teams that have passed Portland by in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And Portland is not getting any younger. It's an issue. Uh, quickly, before we go, I can't believe we, our time is almost up here. <laughs> we we filled up, there's a hundred things I wanted to ask and didn't get to, but the Bucks you mentioned, are they in trouble? I mean, do they need to, to switch that roster too? Because they don't look like they're having a ton of success once again?
1: Well, I mean, I think it definitely helps them as much as like, I don't want to sound gleeful at all about it because I'm not, but it helps them that Kyrie Irving and James Harden are both injured now. I mean, going into the game, they can be even more exaggerated in how they're going to scheme for Kevin Durant and PJ Tucker was more successful in the way that he guarded Kevin Durant in this most recent game. I mean, I think that the first thing they would do if they don't have the success that they're expecting is that Mike Budenholzer is probably going to be out. I mean, I thought that Bootenholzer made good adjustments against the heat in the first round to be coming out after getting, you know, unceremoniously kicked out of the bubble by the heat in the way that they did. He basically took the scheme from the Lakers, used Giannis in the way that the Lakers used Anthony Davis to be hedging and going under picks, forcing James, forcing Jimmy Butler to be a shooter and, and that was a good adjustment to come out from the beginning. I think some of it's been hit or miss against Brooklyn with him where like, you know, you need to just go with Giannis at the center and not in the sense that it's Giannis at the center and he's ISOing up top, but Giannis at the center and he's actually acting like a center and that, you know, he's as the screener. And then part of that comes from Giannis as in like, don't shoot eight threes. Like that's a player decision, like having the self-awareness that this isn't the best shot for my team, but it's also booten holes are putting him in the position where, you know, it comes down to it's not even just using Giannis as, as as the screener because Brooklyn so often gets caught on the high side when they switch it's that run it where the geometry around him is going to make him successful getting to the basket so there's only you know one tagger on the weak side and make that you know whether it's a shooter whoever it's going to be so that tagger has to make a choice between him and the ball instead of having Giannis run into two weak side defenders over and over again and they do that in spurts and then sometimes it'll be like Brooke Lopez yesterday I don't even remember what quarter it was where the set runs down and he's running a dribble handoff and there's three people out above the top of the key and, and Jeff Van Gundy's like, that might be the worst spacing I've ever seen in a possession ever. And it doesn't feel like Mike Budenholzer consistently making the adjustments with that team where it's like, okay, you're not going to beat the Nets at their ISO game. You have to run actions and put their defenders into actions to try to discombobulate some of those switches. So my gut feeling is is that if they come up short, that their reaction is going to be to get in a different coach, whether that's D'Antoni, who's now reportedly interested in that position, if if Budenholzer is let go. But I think that would be the move first.
0: Yeah, how's D'Antoni going to coach both Portland and Milwaukee? Exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Giannis, I, I know who he is, and obviously a unique talent but too much ball in his hand sometimes, you know? Like, yeah. I think back to Rashid Wallace, completely different players, but the Blazers sometimes had to beg Wallace to take the ball because he would he would pass, he would want to work off ball, and he, you know, Giannis could use just a little bit of that. And the thing that I remember, especially in Wallace's, like, sophomore, in, you know, second, third year in the league, he was alley-oop king. And again, a different era, but literally half of Portland's offense was just distracting the opponent so that Wallace could spin, and then the guard would throw the ball up somewhere near the hoop, and Wallace would dunk it, right? And yeah. you know they don't run. I mean, it seems like they're really committed to making uh, Giannis kind of a almost a, a mature KD kind of offensive player with the decision making and the ball control and all that. And a he's not mature enough yet and b he's not that guy so yeah that'll that'll be interesting but that's another player i'd love for the blazers of course anyway uh very good i thank you so much caitlin for being with us we got to run because we've taken almost a whole hour already but uh tell us where we can find you uh on twitter i know it's c2 uh at c2 underscore cooper right
1: Yes, that's correct. That's my handle. And then I'm at Indy Cornrows, part of the lovely SB Nation community that we have at um, is the Pacers blog. And I'm usually over there, one or two articles per week. Right now we're in the middle of recording like an onslaught of player review podcasts. And then when we get out of that, I'm just going to be, doing lots of coaching profiles until whoever the new hire is is made
0: (laughs) will you send them our way because evidently (laughs) everything the Blazers and Pacers do they do in tandem so just link us to those and Twice the uh, coverage for half the work. We love that at Blazers Edge. Uh, in any case, thank you so much for being with us, and we hope you will come back again sometime. Uh, Dia, we'll be back next week. But uh, hey, I've I, I got to take vacation sometime. Maybe you <laughs> and Dia can do a podcast together.
1: Absolutely, I would love that. Thanks for inviting me, and this was actually really informative for my all the Terry Stotts listeners out there when I share this on my own timeline.
0: Yeah, it's so awesome, and you are awesome. Thank you for the work that you do. That's Caitlin Cooper at C2 underscore Cooper uh, on Twitter and at Indy Cornrows. We will see you all again next week where we will be able to ask Dia all about sunny Puerto Rico, about Don Staley rumors, and a hundred other things. Until then, be well and go blazing. A hater
1: sees an opening down the lane moves towards the hoop, but then Dia comes out of nowhere to slap the shot attempt away saying, get that weak stuff out of here! Dave scoops up the loose ball, now it's a fast break the other way with Dia, she's flying down the court, Dave sends her an alley she jams it, boom, shakalapa! The crowd is on its feet saluting Dia, I tell you, if she isn't the rookie of the year, they really ought to just stop giving the award, what a talent!